Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi there. My name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the Mobile Sierra podcast where tech meets pop culture. Today's episode is about Joe and Anthony Russo's Avengers Infinity War. On the show with me today is Mobile Syrup staff reporter, Bradley Shankar. How are you, Bradley? I'm great. Thank you for having me. How are you, Samir? I'm quite well. Thank you for asking. Later on the show, I'll also speak with Toronto-based storyboard and concept artist Rob McCallum, as well as University of Western Ontario Media Studies professor Tim Blackmore. Rob will shed some insight into what it's like being an artist for science fiction films, while Tim will attempt to lend an answer to the difficult question of what makes good science fiction. But first, Brad and I are going to fight to the death over Avengers Infinity War in a segment I like to call The Real Infinity War Was the Friends We Made Along the Way. Here are some credits. Infinity War was directed by Joe and Anthony Russo from a screenplay by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. The film's story is based on characters by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Jim Starlin, and a veritable catter of writers and artists from 79 years of Marvel Comics' House of Ideas. Trent Opalock was responsible for the film cinematography, Alan Silvestri composed the film's score, and Jeffrey Ford and Matthew Schmidt were responsible for editing the whole thing together. Infinity War stars... Oh boy, let's see if I can do this. Infinity War stars Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, Mark Ruffalo, Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, Benedict Cumberbatch, Tom Holland, Chadwick Boseman, Paul Bettany, Elizabeth Olsen, Sebastian Stan, Chris Pratt, Josh Brolin, Don Cheadle, Zoe Saldana, and pretty much every single actor who's appeared in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, except the villains, since 2008. This movie is full of actors. Infinity War is the 19th film in the MCU and is technically the second sequel to 2012's The Avengers. The film stars Josh Brolin as the mad titan Thanos, whose goal is to collect all six of the cosmic infinity stones in order to accomplish his devious goal of bringing balance to the universe. When his plan sends him to Earth, it's up to the Avengers, Earth's mightiest heroes, as well as the Guardians of the Galaxy, the mighty warriors of Wakanda, and sorcerer Stephen Strange to stop the vile villain. Before we continue, listeners beware, we will be talking about spoilers. Thanos is a fictional character, and his demands for silence are irrelevant to me. If you don't believe me, Nicole Kidman is a ghost, Rosebud is a sled, and Snape kills Dumbledore. I'm serious. Once I'm done this sentence, I'm going to list four characters that die in Avengers Infinity War just to prove that we're going to be spoiling this movie. Peter Parker, Stephen Strange, Peter Quill, and T'Challa. Now, Brad, I usually start by asking a simple question. Have you seen the movie? But I absolutely know that you've seen the movie, so I'm going to get right to it. What did you think of Infinity War? Was it everything you were hoping it would be? Did it live up to your expectations? Uh, yeah, so I've I've seen it three times now, um, and yeah, I loved it. Uh, I think it, above all else, you know, it's not, not a perfect movie. I, I don't really think anything is. Uh, it does have its flaws, but I think ultimately it completely captures that sense of a mega comic book crossover, uh, bringing together a very unwieldy cast and yet giving them all something to do and a moment to shine. See, I have to agree with you. Uh, even even when I left the movie, um, and I should mention that uh, I left the movie not really loving Infinity War. I, I liked it. I, I left the movie liking the movie. Um, but having some time to ruminate and stew over my thoughts uh, and really think about what I did and didn't like and what the movie was, one of the things that I like now and one of the things that I liked even when I left it uh, and I saw it on Saturday was... The way that there were so many characters, yes, obviously, sure, but the way that each character got something interesting to do and also got something interesting or funny or clever to say. Absolutely. Uh, Even like the minor characters who, in the grand scheme of things, might not have as big of a role in the plot, they do have a 
a witty uh, comeback or two. I'm thinking, what was it, the, the Jesus line where Peter Quill is like, you know, or Stephen Strange is, what, what master do you serve? And Peter Quill goes, what, am I supposed to say Jesus? Oh, that was funny. I thought that was, that was a funny thing right there. So let's talk a little bit then about what you said earlier, which was, you know, it wasn't a perfect movie. There were th- some things that you uh, you didn't like very much. And I'm curious about that because, listeners, as you as you may or may not know, Brad is sort of our resident MCU fan. He's a huge fan of, of Marvel comics in general, but he's also a, a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So then what uh, what, what weren't you a fan of? What, what didn't you like? Uh, so I think we could just get right into the... The, the moment, you know, that everyone's really talking about is the ending. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of been a little divisive for some people. Uh, as Samir said, we are going to full spoilers. So once again, here's your last warning. Uh, pretty much half the heroes die. Half the universe dies, really, including, you know, like Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and Black Panther. Pretty much all the Guardians of the Galaxy except for uh, Rocket, uh, interestingly enough. So I think... It's interesting because I, I do see the criticism where, you know, a, some of these characters 100% are coming back. Uh, we don't know for sure who exactly will come back uh, outside of Spider-Man has a sequel. Homecoming 2 is filming is going to start filming sometime this July. So we know for a fact, like, Tom Holland's coming back. Uh, he just started in this universe. Same with Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther. Uh, his movie made $1.3 billion. He's 100% coming back. So even though their deaths in the moment, particularly Spider-Man, is like, oh, my God, that was so emotional. Just as a little side tangent, I love that these movies are willing to focus on the fact that he's a kid and he has very raw scenes of emotion. Like you see that scene in Homecoming where he's like crying, he's scared, he's trying to lift up the uh, all the rubble. And same thing in this movie, he's scared and he's hugging Tony. Like it's a great moment. But anyways, back to my point. So yeah, there is the, you know, some of the stakes are lifted knowing that some of them are going to come back. I do think, and I understand the criticism, you know, you should judge this movie on its own rather than the broader context of a a sequel or in this case like a two-parter i do think a big part of the problem is more with how this movie was marketed than the movie itself i feel like kevin feige like co-president of marvel studios kind of the godfather of all these movies and like the screenwriters and the russo brothers who directed it i feel like they should have been more upfront about the fact that this is a two-parter because it was originally announced as a two-parter for context back in uh, 2013, I believe. But they since then kind of changed it. They they said, oh, the it's going to be its own thing. We realize, you know, they're two distinct movies and we don't want to feel like it's a story that's cut in half. But it blatantly is. Like, you can tell by the ending. And I feel like the average moviegoer, like Samir and I obviously are, you and I are very tuned into comic books. So we kind of expected a little cliffhanger ending like this or a big cliffhanger like this rather but the average person like I saw the movie a second time with a friend of mine who's not familiar with the comics she doesn't even really remember a lot of the MCU movies after seeing them she kind of just sees them on a movie by movie basis and like she's the average person that I kind of try to consider when I see this and like she had no idea that it was a two-parter I feel like if they were more upfront about that it would be a little better than people coming out and be like, what, what's going on? Like, what's happening? Because even in the marketing, they kept marketing this movie as the end. Like, the trailers, this is the end. And it's true, it's the beginning of the end. But they never stressed that. They just said, the end is near. The, this is the end. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I just feel like they should have been more upfront about that. Understanding the marketing of this movie is sort of why I didn't love it leaving the theater and why I, I came to I came to enjoy it more uh, reflecting on it. Like Brad pointed out, a lot of the marketing focused on the conclusion of not really the MCU, but of this particular MCU storyline. And that's great. But at the same time, whenever Kevin Feige or the Russo brothers were being interviewed, they said things like, oh, don't worry, you know, uh, Hawkeye has a role in the movie. You know, Scott's not in the marketing, but he's there. Like, you know, these characters are there. Oh, yeah, this is a complete story for Thanos, which yeah, it is. It actually is a complete story line for Thanos if we assume that this movie is about Thanos, which I would argue that this is more a Thanos movie than an Avengers movie, mostly because, of course, it's sort of from his perspective. He has the major emotional beats. He's responsible for pushing the plot forward. He's responsible for... He gets a happy ending, really. Like, it's a beautiful shot in the end. He looks at the sunset, and it's just, you know, farmer Thanos reflecting on on his great accomplishments. But the marketing for the film was what contributed to me not liking it as much. But moving past that... And, and looking at this movie um, in a vacuum as a standalone film and in the vacuum of the MCU, of the broader MCU, I got over the marketing and that was, that was something that helped me move past uh, some, of the, some of the flaws that I, that I uh, witnessed. You mentioned Hawkeye. That's a great example. Like everyone was kind of losing their minds because where's Jeremy, Renner, Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye? You know, all the marketing because he's one of the founding Avengers. He's been there 
not in counting his uncredited cameo in Thor, he's been in an Avenger since 2012. Uh, he's been in all the movies since, though he was out, sitting out Winter Soldier, which didn't make any sense. And then the Russo brothers kept saying, don't worry, uh, patience, patience. He has a very interesting arc in this film. And I thought that was very misleading. They should have just upright said, you know what? He's not in this movie, but, you know, he has a great role in the next one. And to that point, uh, like in the post credit scene with uh, Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury and Kobe Smulders is Mariah Hill, I'm pretty sure Fury actually says we need to call Clint. So, like, they're clearly setting up, and based on set photos, you can tell he's kind of wearing his Ronin outfit from the comics where he's more of, like, this uh, kind of samurai ninja. He kind of renounces the role of Hawkeye, which makes sense given that he's kind of on the outs with the law. I mean, he made a deal, they said, which kind of explains why he's not there. But in any case, I just feel like you need to be more upfront about that kind of thing. Because people, I think, are understanding of that fact if you're just up up front about it. Because there's so many people in this movie anyways. If you just straight up said, you know, Hawkeye, we'll see him later, probably would have been better. I wonder then if much of the way that the film was marketed was a result of the fact that this is, uh, you know, the movie that was released for the 10-year anniversary, and they kind of had to build it up to be this this huge phenomenal thing, which is interesting because it already is a huge phenomenal thing. Even if you disagree with it being the biggest movie ever made, even if you disagree with it being the most expensive movie ever made, which it's not, even if you disagree with it being the largest crossover event in history, it's still an important big movie. It's an important movie for us culturally because it's sort of this quote-unquote culmination of this grand experiment that we've been calling the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's got all of these huge, huge, big-budget actors together. And even if they're not necessarily on this... on on screen together all the time they're still there it's still all these moving parts are there so i wonder then why this need to uh, to market it as something that's bigger than it is when it already is a behemoth of a movie and i was wondering brad now you you want a fan trip to go see infinity war but also you got to see different parts of marvel studios and different parts of disney uh when you were there did did you get a chance to ask did they really sort of explain uh, the direction with the marketing did they get a chance to explain Expand on Infinity War. Full disclosure: I did actually uh, get a trip from Disney, uh, covered by them, to go to the Avengers: Infinity War premiere in Hollywood, uh, which was an amazing experience. I also got to visit the set of Captain Marvel. I'm not allowed to speak about that at all. And uh, other than to say that he got to go because that's part of the trip that was included in the in the promotion for it. And uh, a tour of Disney Studios and Marvel Studios because Marvel Studios is owned by Disney and they're on the same lot as Disney. So to your to answer your question, we didn't really get a chance to speak to any of them. Uh, we got a, a bit of a, t- a bit of time with uh, the head of visual de- development, uh, Ryan Maynarding. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that name. Uh, and Andy Park, they're two of the big guys uh, there who handle all the visual development. So they design like the looks of the costumes. They do a lot of concept art, and they've worked on uh, Andy not as many, but I'm pretty sure Ryan's done every MCU movie since the original Iron Man. It was cool to kind of get the behind the scenes look at all the art that they drew. But yeah, we met Kevin Feige briefly, which was an amazing nerd out experience, uh, to be honest. But busy guy, you know, the premiere was in three hours. He kind of had to go. So yeah, we didn't get really get a chance to ask them much about that. And then obviously we hadn't seen the movie at that time, so we didn't know how that related to the marketing, if it was misleading or not. You didn't know about the grand deception of Marvel. <laughs> So we've raised a little bit of criticism, and I'm sure we're going to have a little bit more to say about the things that we didn't necessarily like as much or love or so forth. What then did this movie do well? Brad, I'm going to let you start off with this because I feel like you know what you want to say for this. Kind of speaking to my first point, just the fact that it brought these characters together and gave them all something to do and something to say, gave them all shining moments, and it balanced the cast so well. And more to the point... Like you said, this is the 19th movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The fact that this movie not only was able to bring these characters in, but also give them great character moments, too, that build off arcs in previous films. Like, again, since we're talking about spoilers, when Star-Lord, you know, Chris Pat Star-Lord, makes a decision in this movie that a lot of people are dragging him for online. Because, you know, yes, he did something stupid and selfish, but... You understand why No, 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 is. no. What did he do, Brad? <laughs> yeah, so for context, what did he do? the heroes, you know, uh, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, uh, some of the rest of the Guardians of the Galaxy, including Star-Lord, they managed to actually momentarily detain Thanos, and they're about to take the gauntlet off. So in other words, they, they're, they're look, it's looking like they're about to succeed. And then Star-Lord is like, ha, we got you, man. That was pretty easy. Like, so what, where's Gamora? Because, you know, we've established in the previous two movies that he's got a thing for her, uh, Zoe Saldana's Gamora. With Mantis and uh, Nebula, he finds out that, and then Thanos admits that, yeah, I, I killed her. And that was a great moment. I thought Pratt really nailed that. You know, uh, he's like, I had to do it. No, you didn't. And it, like, he, that was a very great emotional character moment. And, you know, 
Tony's like trying to tell him, you know, stop, man. We almost got it. But even though it's something that, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, like we, we know that the, the smart thing to do would have been to just wait a bit. But, you know, he's so consumed in that moment by emotion. And we have the context of, you know, his mother died in the first movie. His father that he was searching for his whole life ended up being not a good person. He ended up killing his mom. And then the real father figure that he had died right in front of him, uh, Yondu, in Guardians Volume 2. So we have the context of those two movies. So seeing Star-Lord react so emotionally to that is justified, even though, you know, he shouldn't have done that. Uh, and same thing with Gamora, you know, revealing the uh, the whereabouts of the Soul Stone. Uh, again, the smart thing to do would have been to, you know, let Nebula bite the dust and keep that kitten. But we have the context of their relationship in the previous two Guardians movies. So we know that, you know, they have a very twisted but in- almost endearing sister relationship. So you understand why Gamora would be like, I, I can't bear to watch Nebula suffer anymore, especially when I caused so much of her suffering in the first place, you know. I want to end that, and that's why she tells Thanos the you know the location of the stone. So I thought things like that, and that's just two examples that I focused on from the Guardians too. But like, there's so many other ones with Iron Man. I think Doctor Strange has a really good role in this movie as well. Uh, so yeah, it just capitalizes so much. And not to mention you know the action scenes, like seeing them all team up together on Earth, or the final fight against Thanos at the very end, which probably elicited the most cheers in all three times I saw the movie when Thor comes back with the Stormbreaker, which has Groot's arm as a handle, which is just hilarious. That was an amazing moment where Alan Silvestri's amazing Avengers score just comes in and Thor just wrecks all of the Thanos' minions, the Outriders. Like, amazing moment. I agree with you on almost all of the points. Yes, I, watching the movie, was very, very annoyed with the... with with, with Sort of with the way that Star-Lord goes about costing the the avengers like the battle the fact that he's responsible in this emotional outburst moment for effectively dooming half the universe i thought that that was rather silly but understanding again the context of the previous two guardians movies understanding the context of this movie and even even seeing the relationship between between uh, zoe saldana's gamora and chris pratt's star lord in infinity war i understand that it had to happen because of course and this this goes back to the fact that 2018's Infinity War is part one of two movies and was originally part one of two movies and now is sort of its own standalone film, but it's really not. Knowing all of this, the heroes had to lose. They had to lose because this is a part one of two, but also they had to lose because this is really more of Thanos' story. Acknowledging that this is Thanos' story is also sort of what annoys me about that Star-Lord scene where he pretty much just punches Thanos back into back into consciousness. I was sort of hoping that Thanos would have a more clever way of getting out of that situation. But, I mean, what are you going to do? You've got You've got a mind-controlling alien subduing you you have a mechanical spider-man uh working with iron man (laughs) to pull drag the destroyer holding you back steven strange also so it makes sense it makes sense in context well and we know he wasn't expecting them all to be there and he wasn't expecting them all to be there so like it, it all makes sense in context and that's the thing context is super important to this movie in a way that i would argue context hasn't really been that important to the previous films um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to Thor Ragnarok really quickly. Brad and I, of course, we talked about Thor Ragnarok when it came out. We both saw it a number of times uh, in theaters, and I imagine uh, on home media as well. One of the things that we were a little annoyed about with Thor Ragnarok was the tone of the film, and that it's this very important, essential moment for Thor. It, his planet gets dis- spoilers, just spoilers everywhere, guys. His planet gets destroyed. His father dies. It turns out he has an evil half sister. His brother is well, he's Loki, so Loki's Loki. <laughs> you know, like he he loses his hammer and his. Hammer. All this stuff, but there's just jokes and jokes and jokes, like a joke a minute. What I liked about Infinity War was the tone. It had this, it, it, it had this important tone, but also the context in this movie mattered. We we kind of did have to watch, you know, the past eighteen movies to get to this point. And there is an argument to be made against that. I've made that argument before. I've made that argument uh, in private. I've made that argument in public. I've I've made that argument to whoever will listen. But as a movie that, first of all, yes, has been marketed as the culmination, but as a movie that includes all of these characters that have dozens and dozens of screen hours to, to establish who they are, I'm willing to forgive the fact that this is a movie that relies on viewers needing the context of the previous MCU. I will say, speaking to criticisms and speaking to what Brad said about how cool it was watching all the Avengers fighting together, as a fan, I was really, really upset that I didn't get to see all the action figures 
fight on the same field. I, I saw you mention that. Uh, and again, that, that kind of ties into the broader point. We know we're going to get that in the next one, which again, shouldn't entirely be used as a defense for this movie. But a lot of like the bigger moments, like Steve and uh, Tony reuniting, 100% that's going to be a big emotional moment in the next movie, especially since they're one of the few survivors now. And like all the teams working together, including Captain Marvel, we know Ant-Man and the Wasp will be there. So I imagine that big galvanizing moment. And hopefully Steve will finally say Avengers Assemble. Because uh, we kind of got uh, <laughs> teased with that at the end of uh, Ultron. Uh, I'm hoping that happens in that movie. But it's interesting you said about, you brought up Ragnarok and then the broader context of this larger cinematic universe. I think, uh, again, I don't want to use it entirely as a defense, but I think it is interesting because nothing like this in cinema has ever really been attempted, this idea of a broader cinematic universe. Obviously, we have movies that are related with sequels and uh, spinoffs or whatever, but... The idea that there's such a broad... It's kind of like a big TV series in a way. Uh, it's kind of hard to find a complete analogy for it. But So I think it's, it's interesting how we criticize this movie because nothing has really been done like it. Uh, you know, the idea that there are all these other movies that you have to consider or maybe you don't have to consider them depending on how quote-unquote relevant they are to the broader MCU. So it is an interesting thing. Like for me... Again, I said the marketing, I think, was more of the issue. I, I do think, being the broader nature of you know some of these movies already confirmed, we, that does undo some of the stakes with the death. But I, I do think because it is a, a larger film, I'm not entirely upset with you know some of them being undone. Because at the end of the day, like the deaths, I mean, uh, we don't know exactly who's coming back or in what form. And I think the fact that some of them are missing kind of raises some interesting questions of how they're going to deal with that. Like, you know, the Avengers are even more fractured than they were before. Like, the Guardians of the Galaxy is just a, a raccoon now, or as Thor comedically says, rabbit, which is great. And, like, I'll be curious to see how other characters step up. Like, uh, Wakanda is completely ruined now, presumably missing, like, half of its army. You know, its king is gone. So that really, and presumably, we don't see Shuri pass away. She just kind of was knocked out by one of the Black Order. So presumably she's still alive. It'll be kind of interesting, for example, to see how her... And Okoye kind of step up. Maybe Okoye becomes like the de facto, not king, obviously, uh, but like leader of whatever. So it'll be kind of interesting to see, even though we know that T'Challa's coming back, it'll be kind of interesting to see how those characters step up. And I do think one thing that I've noticed a lot of people haven't really pointed out, besides like the bigger nerds like me, is because it, it was kind of subtle, but Doctor Strange clearly has a bigger plan at play. Because uh, he even says to Tony, he's like, this was the only way it could happen. So, like, we know he looked into the future. He says he saw all the different futures. But what what, what some people are thinking, including myself, is that he clearly saw that there was no way around Thanos winning. He clearly thinks that the larger endgame was Thanos getting the, all the stones and do, achieving that. And, you know, because he said he was willing to sacrifice Tony and Peter to achieve that. But then we realize at the end, oh, no, he's actually doesn't want to sacrifice them. He probably saw that, you know, Tony is part of the key to all this. Like, Tony needs to be alive. And that actually kind of ties into the comics a little bit. Because one of the characters in the comics, Adam Warlock, who's kind of this messianic cosmic figure. He's not in the movie, though he was teased at the end of Guardians 3. Doctor Strange kind of fills in a lot of his role, like, with galvanizing some of the heroes and, you know, giving them a lot of exposition. But uh, in the comics, you know, Adam Warlock kind of sets all the heroes off on Thanos, knowing that it's a suicide mission because he has a larger plan at play. And I feel like that's kind of what Strange did here, too. Like, he knows, you know, they had to die, basically, and himself included. He knew he had to die. So that's, that'll be interesting to see. Brad bringing up the Infinity Gauntlet limited series run, Brad bringing up that he's a nerd, and also him referencing earlier that he and I are both comic book fans, sort of speaks to one of the things that, one of the criticisms, rather, that Infinity War, the movie, has received and most likely will continue to receive in that for comic fans, or not even for fans, but people who read comic books, Infinity War as a movie is kind of, it's rote. It's common. It happens at least once a year. Every single year, we get a big comic book crossover event, and every single year, the Marvel Universe, the DC Universe, you know, what have you, they're, they're reshaped in some way, shape, or form. But of course, for cinema, this is new. And again, the MCU, it is an experiment. It's, uh, it's an attempt to say, can this kind of serialized long-form storytelling happen in movies, a medium that traditionally exists only for the for the two-hour-long span that an audience witnesses them. We see, we've seen serialization become more popular in the realm of television, and we're seeing serialization, of course, become far more popular with movies. I say become more popular with movies, but really the only two franchises that have really managed to 
like get a good grasp of what it's like to tell long form storytelling in the same way that you see in comic books, yes, is the MCU and is also Star Wars. The DC Extended Universe, the DC Cinematic Universe, whatever whatever name you want to give it, kind of hasn't really been able to do that because there's a lot of retconning. Retcon means retroactive continuity, which is when you have one artist or writer sort of rewrite the existing canon uh, and, and changes them from book to book or movie to movie or episode to episode. The DC Cinematic Universe kind of hasn't got a good grasp on that. Whereas the MCU and, of course, Star Wars, they, they've got that down to a T. Star Wars has been around for 30, almost 40 years, so they've got, they've got that whole thing going on. So, again, bearing in mind all of the criticisms that we've got, Brad, would you agree that we, we kind of do have to, again, recognize the context in which Infinity War as a movie exists in the grander context of this long-form storytelling experiment that, that Marvel's trying to push? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's why I'm a little more... Ignoring the fact that I know that how the comics play out and everything, so I'm a little more forgiving uh, of things not necessarily being resolved because we know there are other parts. Again, I just my criticism is just more that they were upfront about that. I think if they sold people more on the idea that you know, bear in mind there is a part two to this because again they dropped the part one completely, so the average person probably doesn't know. I think if you're they we all know what the MCU is, so just be more upfront about what this movie is in the context of the MCU. Uh, and then even, like, with the post credit scene, like, I had to explain to my friend, that's Captain Marvel. Like, the average person probably doesn't know that because it's just a logo. So, again, some things I think could have been sold better to the average audience because, I, again, I always try to remove myself from the fact that I'm a super nerd. I'm not the average moviegoer who doesn't know all the stuff that I do. So I suppose then that that is a fantastic segue into our next segment. And I should mention, viewer experience is typically comprised of three individual segments. But every now and then, we're going to encounter a movie where there isn't a single piece of technology that we can hang a lampshade on. And Infinity War kind of is one of those movies. Instead, what it is, is a landmark science fiction film that does warrant an extended conversation about the nature of sci-fi, as well as the nature of blockbuster movies. As such... Listen on for my interviews with Toronto-based storyboard and concept artist Rob McCallum, as well as University of Western Ontario Media Studies professor Tim Blackmore. In the interest of full disclosure, I did speak with Rob and Tim separately. My name is Rob McCallum, and I'm a storyboard and concept artist in the film industry, uh, where I work with the director or production designer to uh, either design shots for sequences for movies or to design the look of props or scenes or sequences in the movies or TV shows that I'm working on. I'm Tim Blackmore from the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario, and please just call me Tim. Rob, I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining to our listeners what a storyboard artist and a concept artist does. A storyboard is when you sit with the director. Every director has a different way of doing this. Basically, the end result is that I draw I draw the movie before it's made. I'm the cheapest way that the film will ever be made up until a certain point when they start filming. And it allows you know, people to work out what's visual effect shots because every visual effect shot costs money. Um, if there's an in- integration between visual effects and live action, exactly where that line is drawn. You know, is it a is the set um, fully built? Is it a partial build where you've just got like a table and the rest of the set is all green screen and then they put this the the rest of the set and digitally afterwards. And you basically can tell how the sequence the sequence works. So the director will end up with what they want to be told, um, the way they want to tell it on paper so that they can pass it around and everyone can see how it all works. As far as concept art goes, it's basically it's it's the design element of everything. It storyboarding is the designing of shots. Concept art is the designing of elements, uh, the look, the feel, the atmosphere, or even just the nuts and bolts of, you know, if you're designing like a scanner, what the scanner is going to look like and how it relates to the, the design sense um, with the, the, the rest of the film or TV show. But the storyboards tend to be with the director. Concept art section of it tends to be with the production designer of the show that uh, the director was always going to have input in that usually color which is kind of it's kind of similar to concept art except it's usually a direct shot as you would see in the, the resulting film or tv show so it's basically my rendition of that rob this question's for you as well as an artist who works on sci-fi properties what's it like designing and imagining the future there's two big problems that are well, not problems but 
there's two there's two hurdles as far as imagining the future goes, and that is two thousand and one: A Space Odyssey and Blade Runner did it very well. Um, they were uh, they're they're the two ones that I think are hard to get out of your head when you're when you're doing it. The design work in two thousand and one was just beautiful. It was it was quiet and clean and 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 realistically nothing's ever really <laughs> in the future you, you can't keep something that white and clean for long ever you know as soon as people walk into it you get footprints all that stuff even if you do have velcro shoes on to stick to the walls but uh... here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Uh, and Blade Runner is your your sprawling cityscape sort of feel to it, and. I think those two films, they, I think they still stick in people's heads. And it has influenced design of movies, like like probably way more than, than most people would realise. And as far as trying to come up with, you know, kind of new stuff goes, you're always going to, I mean, even back, you know, as far back as uh, Metropolis, you know, they had huge skyscrapers, they had flying cars. We're, we need to catch up in the future on overpass, you know, like over, overhead bridges and high bridges and stuff. Oh, that's one thing that we don't really have yet, but I'm sure it's going to come the way congestion and the, and the roads are going in real life. But you, know, you can see the influence of Blade Runner even, even now. And in, in every single sci fi movie almost that you see, there's something that you can, that probably has. Uh, a direct line back to Blade Runner. It's it's the one that everyone keeps going back to. It's kind of hard not to, to be honest, because I think they did it pretty well. It was, uh, we don't have flying cars yet. Between them and the overpasses, we can do with them. But just the general look of everything. And, uh, you know, actually, you know what? Neon, neon, neon staffed umbrellas would be nice as well, just because it looked good in the rain. But, <laughs> but, yeah, those those two films have, have got a massive influence. I keep saying this again, but because I'm, I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to pick out examples for specific films from these days. But you know, if you look at things like Ghost in the Shell, Mute actually has a bit of a Blade Runner, Duncan Jones Mute. That's got a bit of a Blade Runner vibe going on. To, except it's got it taking place a lot in the daytime, but it's actually kind of nice because you never usually have that in sci-fi movies. When you see things in movies, like so, take the old Star Trek for example, the original series. That was how, at the time, they imagined computers would be. And uh, actually, the actual outside, the, the exterior design of the Enterprise is still beautiful. It's very sleek and very simple and nicely designed. The inside is very 60s and, and of the time, so it's very orange and everything, and all the computers are be blinking lights. And, and in a way, they were much more, the computers in, like, say, Star Trek or one of the more designy science fiction movies, they were, they were a simplification of what we thought computers might end up being like because at the time I suppose computers were huge big cooled rooms full of these uh, tape wielding monstrosities that, that, that were a computer and everything came out on ticker tape and, and, and that so it made sense that you would, they would simplify a computer for what they knew culturally at the time and uh, I mean like nowadays you know we're all walking about with computers in our pockets that you can shoot and edit a 4k video on and do the soundtrack and it makes phone calls you know so uh some simplification at the time and what we kind of might think things are going to be but it's all going to be based on your knowledge of now this next question is for both of you why do we love science fiction why do we keep flocking to sci-fi narratives i think the fact is that uh we're interested in the fantastic that is that which is completely outside of um, our experience and outside of it, it, the effectively these are waking dreams in many ways and I think we're really interested in that I think we are as human beings seem to be possessed by 
this notion of that which cannot be, and that some many people seem to wish and feel that if they could get there, they'd be happier, and so on. So it's sort of there's always a fantasy element, and when I say fantasy, I don't mean uh, you know swords and sorcery fantasy. I mean there's a quality of a phantasm or of a dreamlike state that you could somehow life would be better if you could only you know have your robot friend <laughs> to keep you to keep you company or whatever it might be. So that we look at science and we look at the future as being an, a hopeful, undiscovered country. And in American science fiction particularly, science fiction has used or has played the role of being the frontier, the hopeful new frontier. So that's a lot of why we're, inter- we're attracted by it. Even if it's gloomy, and often that, you know, people may be in love with a genre in the case of, uh, say, the film noir or, or uh, you know, people are in love with Blade Runner because it's noir. Uh, so they may just love that. You know, they may just love the idea of zombies for whatever, you know, multiple bunch of reasons. But probably at the base of it, there's the idea that there can be a new world that comes out of this. So even the planet, the most recent reboot of the Planet of the Apes films suggests that these apes are better than we are and that Caesar sees a world which is better, which is more peaceful, which is, and it's certainly shown that way. I mean, it's certainly romanticized enormously. So there's a great deal of romance, small art romance, you know, not, not uh, lovey-dovey romance, but romance where you get to dream that, uh, you know, hey, life could be simpler. And Westworld takes up the same, same issues. It's like, you know, what if life were a Wild West show, but it was real. So there's a there's a real sense of, of hopefulness and dreaming and a wishing to be somewhere else, um, I think, in our lives that drives a lot of this. People like ideas. People like to be visually wowed because an awful lot of science fiction movies tend, I mean, you get the kind of lower key science fiction movies, but it's uh, the big flashy ones, the big, whoa, you know, ones like, like, like I've not seen Infinity War, but the trailers look phenomenal. Visually, we like to be, we like to be stimulated. Idea-wise, we like to be stimulated, and science fiction's a great place for ideas. Most genres, while they do, you know, horror films have been great ideas, thrillers kind of great ideas. It's, you know, science, science fiction has great ideas, which are allowed to go in certain ways, depending on the genre of the film but with science fiction it's, it talks about us now the best science fiction films kind of talk about what's going on in our world right now and challenge usually challenges a question poses, you know, poses a question to make you think about whether you realize you're doing it or not a lot of the time it uh, it makes you think about your life now really i mean if you look at things like people like fantasy as well like you know films that involve goblins and dragons and stuff like that that's fantasy but science fiction is actually probably a wee bit more likely <laughs> than going down the street and seeing a, a hobbit fighting a dragon. You know, you're more likely to be able to get like a hologram coming out of your cell phone at some point in the future. And I mean, I, w- I actually worked very briefly on a film called Unknown with Andrew Nichol, who's, who's made some very, very interesting sci-fi films uh, that posed quite interesting questions about life. And Anon is basically the, the trailer. It's going to be on Netflix. I think the trailer um, was just I actually saw it for the first time at the end of the week. And it's basically people are kind of fitted with augmented reality in their vision. And and, and you know what? It was it's actually really nice because it wasn't it wasn't super flashy in the trailer. It was just very subtle, wee white uh, white lines and dialogue to just kind of augment things a little bit more, which is actually probably what it would be because if you're looking at things in your day to day life, you don't want it looking like a 1995 web page where you get flying toasters all over it and stuff like that, you know, and remember these, uh, these Tony Stark sort of targets or Terminator targets and things like that. It's a nice wee glimpse into what, what could be, what you hope might not be around, and otherwise it's just, it's it's and it can also act as escapism, so there's a there's a kind of wide range of why I think sci-fi is, is popular and why people go and see these these films. Tim, this one's for you. What makes good science fiction? Good science fiction or great science fiction is it's so rare, like most things. I mean, it, most science fiction is crap, whether it's written or whether it's film. And because now, you know, as of what is last week, I guess, 2001 is 50 years old, it's still a remarkable piece of science fiction, mostly because Kubrick understood how to make this vision without pushing anybody's he didn't try to do anything that he couldn't actually do. I mean, the the thing now, when you go back and look at it, the things that look the worst are the ape suits. You know, they're just so bad. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, 
But apart from that, he did really well because they they planned and used all analog technologies, but they to, in the making of the film. But they really were only they and he really pushed. I mean, he used every piece of camera technology that he knew, and he was a he was a lens nut, as you know. So uh, a text like 2001, where the original, you know, is really the original short story, The Sentinel, was really sort of mildly interesting. And then Clark's novelization of the film that he and Kubrick wrote together is kind of tedious and and sort of bland. I mean, a lot of Clark's texts are bland. I I don't, you know, Clark is an interesting guy. He had good ideas, but he wasn't a great writer. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, it's not like H.G. It's the same thing with H.G. Wells. You know, interesting, but not a great writer. You know, you're not going to, like, run home to read your... (laughs) Maybe if you're 14, you're going to run home to read your R.C. Clark. But, you know, when you're 30, you're like, Bleh. you know, <laughs> another, you know, let me watch another episode of, you know, Peaky Blinders. So what makes great science fiction, I think, is that it is, it, it understands what it's doing. So the people who are involved have something they want to get at, and they, and they know how to use the metaphorical properties and the, the tropes that science fiction can, can produce. So those great texts and I would include, say, Snow Crash in that. It's, you know, Neil Stevenson looking at this and saying, I'm a computer coder. I've learned something about linguistics. Uh, I've learned the, about the way that language programs the brain. I'm going to follow the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. I'm going to do some, you know, I'm going to read a bit of Chomsky. I'm going to read some ancient Sumerian texts or, you know, some, read some, some <laughs> about, I'm going to read up about ancient Sumer. And I'm going to put all this together in the context of hacking now and say the 22nd century, basically. And I'm going to give a, a cultural critique at the same time. That's an amazing piece of text, but it's really rare. And so what makes it good is that you come to it with, you're fully loaded with all kinds of ideas that you're prepared to play with. And you're not just there to play because you're going to play with the ideas, but you're also going to drive a narrative. And most science fiction is narrative-driven and plot-driven rather than character-driven. That's changed somewhat. Since the new wave, basically since the 60s and the 70s, that's changed, where before the 60s and the 70s, characters just tend to be characters. But after people like Philip Dick and Harlan Ellison and Joe Alderman and oh, James Tiptree Jr. and Ursula Le Guin, characters began to look like human beings. And then, and so now we can have entirely character-driven texts. And some of those character-driven texts are, are great. You know, they're, they are truly, you know, they are truly wonderful books. But Gateway, I'm thinking about a film that would be you could make Gateway now by Fred Pohl, which was a Hugo and Nebula. And that that book won every single award in I think 1977 worldwide. You could film it now, but there's a terror in it, and there's a sort of an appalling doom that hangs over it. And the characters are almost always frightened and scared for their lives, or they're just scared, or they're just panicking. And you know, it's so it's a very and the characters are beautifully written. But the science, I mean, Paul was also really interested. He was also an amateur, basically a, a hobbyist scientist, basically. So he was hugely a reader. He read about astronomy. He read about biology. He read about all kinds of things. So he mixes all that stuff together. He puts together an artificial intelligence, which is a program that was written to which he, which the character calls. Siegfried von Shrink, who he sees every week and gives him Freudian analysis, but it's an, it's an AI. There, and that's just part of the text. So it, you have to, you can't make a great science fiction text from special effects. That won't do it. You've got to have characters that we can believe in, a story that they're going to follow, and a plot that's going to keep us going, that we, we are, as I say, we go along for the ride. So that's one of the, that's a few of the things that make, I think, science fiction great. Both of you talked a little bit about the positive aspects of sci-fi. In your opinions, what is it about dystopian futures that draw in audiences and readers? Why do we seem to like dystopian fiction so much? It seems to be this, this, this one of the paradoxes that we have where as soon as we imagine Eden, we know very well that it's too good to be true. I mean, there's a certain reality. Ironically, this is the bizarre thing. You know, we have friends come out of a science fiction movie and they'll say, this wouldn't have been realistic if he's like, are you kidding me? We just saw a movie. None of it is realistic. You know, it's like, it's a movie. So this idea that, you know, if you've got an Eden, then there's got to be something rot- rotten in it. And usually utopian films, utopian science fiction tends to end with, you know, Eden is, turns out oh, it's bad news, so Hunger Games, something like that. Dystopian science fiction, you're looking for the good stuff. So often, the if you start in if you start with things badly, usually they will end well. If you start with things going well, they're going to end badly. So, 
uh, sort of your, we know this pattern well enough that what happens in science fiction also happens in, uh, that's why Westerns are such a cognate genre, because the something's wrong in a Western. The new marshal or the unnamed hero comes to town, doesn't talk very much, and settles things, and then rides away, having straightened out the problems that were left behind, the problems that were systemic. The corrupt mayor, sheriff, the whole bunch of them are gone. The problems with racism have been fixed. If nothing else, the woman who has lost her husband and now has a single child, you know, that she's set up on a plantation for life, you know, that sort of very much middle-class dreams of, of st- stability and security. So if you start off with things that are dark, you know that what's going to happen in the text is that they're going to get fixed. Now, unless they're seriously grim and you're dealing with something like Brazil or 1984, they're going to get better, not worse, in the course of the text. So a dystopia is going to start off badly, end up reasonably well, where there will be some kind of redemption. But we do seem to enjoy imagining very dark futures, even, and as I say, even in fantasy, where at the moment the, sort of, the ter- trend towards grimdark has been you know, very strong. I think that's partly... That's partly the times. It's partly the, the the taste of the audience. There's so many things that go into you know why why are we interested in these you know truly grim stories? And I think uh, Walking Dead is one of those texts where you look at it and you say, okay, you know what what are people getting out of this? And a lot of it is the identification with the few survivors, where people jam themselves into these identities the way they do in Game of Thrones or any text, really, and begin to say, that's me, I'm rooting for so-and-so. As long as they're on screen, I'm, I'm prepared to go along with this narrative. So a lot of, and it's, it's also, you know, you don't want to go into a movie and have everything just be great. You know, even in a, even in a, in a children's, you know, if we can think of the sweetest text we can think of, there's still going to be trouble. There has to still be a, con- a conflict or some kind of contradiction. So even if you take something like Wreck-It Ralph, which is, you know, pretty hard to get bummed out about, you know, not a lot of crying children in Wreck-It Ralph, you know, when I went to see it, as opposed to Inside, which is like uh, Inside Out, where people are like, what? <laughs> you know, kids are like, what's going on? If you take Wreck-It Ralph, there's still a struggle. You know, he's still got to be trapped in this land. There's still a bad guy. There still has to be – this is still what, what appeals to the human being is that there has to be a challenge. It has to be significant enough to the hero, protagonist, individual that we sign on with them and then over, see that challenge overcome. So a lot of the idea of you know creating a, a, a wonderful possible future and then having it immediately turned into sort of this polluted wasteland – suggest that now what's going to appear next? Well, the hero will appear next and the hero will set things straight. Let me think. I mean, I suppose if you go, I mean, this far back is something like Silent Running, which was Bruce Dern on a spaceship with three robots trying to keep these kind of biodomes in space with, with plants from Earth alive. There's always been a kind, yeah, it's, it's interesting because there's always been a kind of vibe in science fiction where basically society's kind of gone wrong and it kind of shows an incredible pessimistic view of people. I've always thought, because I, I, I always like to think that people are kind of inherently good, but the minute, I, I suppose the minute you, you, you drive from where I live into downtown Toronto every day, you would maybe question that because <laughs> you see the state of people's driving. Please, someone invent flying cars very, very soon. I would love that. Or teleporters or some form of catapult at this point, I'd be fine. Vision Visually, visually, it looks good. Visually, dystopian futures look really good. They're very interesting to, especially you know, from my point of view, as a, you know, doing concepts are on uh, wrecked buildings and all the neon and grubby griminess and stuff like that. It looks good. Where do you two think we get the ideas for science fiction? Which influences which? Does art influence culture, or does culture influence art? It's a co-constitutive issue. There, it's very tough to point the finger and say. Here, something came only from the culture and here and from design, and here something came only from uh, a cultural text, a representation, a piece of uh, imaginative work, basically. So usually they create, they co-create each other, and occasionally you see something where there's a leap forward, um, often in a fictional text, where the ideas are, seem very new, <clears throat> and they're probably new because they've come from somewhere else. So... The best examples that I can think of off off 
hand are probably Shelley's Frankenstein is almost always pointed to as one of those issues where it's like it's not really about science, although it appears to be about science in the sense that there's not a lot of science in it. Um, but there's a lot of natural science in it, and there's a lot of the the philosophy of the debate between basically what is uh, what is human what is human's job uh, what is the job of humanity in dealing with the creation of new beings, I guess. But really, in a way as well, and it's very hard to get away from the fact that Shelley was dealing with had dealt with a miscarriage, um, was worried about a next pregnancy. Uh, justifiably, I mean, you know, it was a dangerous pregnant death in pregnancy uh, in the early 19th century was very common. So, you know, these are all justifiable fears. But what it also produced in her case was this examination of what would men give birth to if they were going to give birth. And so that's sort of, you can see that driving Frankenstein. So when we come to Frankenstein, we typically think about the monster, um, the unnamed monster. But really, that's not necessarily the big focus. That's what the film, the first film, turned it into, was the, the big monster. Another huge sort of shift that we can see would be something like Neuromancer, where we'd had big networks uh, really since the end of the war, although they were, since the end of World War II, although they weren't really functioning at, at any of the kind of speed we're talking about now. But by the early 80s, having massive global uh, transnational uh, computer networks was a given. It was understood that this is, you know, that things were connected, they were interlinked, they were networked, so on. But then the, and the supposition that there might be an artificial intelligence that would grow in a system of a certain size where nobody really understood the whole system anymore. It had been put together as a, as a series of pieces and then the pieces sort of got up and began walking around. That is a, a, an old science fiction idea as well. It basically dates back to sort of early in the 20th century. What Gibson did in Neuromancer that was unusual was he used a lot of biological metaphors. So people began understanding technology in terms of biology. So he often uses, and this is what, what, you know, what makes the Matrix clever, is that, and the Matrix used the same stuff 20 years later, um, was to pick up ideas that, you know, inside, so when Neo, you know, gets his face fused together and at one point when one of the Mr. Smiths holds him down and, you know, forces a bug into his body, it takes on this sort of disgusting slog-like form, but it's really a piece of machinery. So there's this metaphor for the way that, you know, how do we experience a computer virus? And in the world of Gibson and Neuromancer and in the world of Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, we experience the virus as an actual virus in the body. So that's when you can see things jump forward. So most of the time, it would be hard put to say, uh, you know, the invention came first, because sometimes the imagination of the invention comes first. And as you say about the tricorder in uh, Star Trek, it took, that was, you know, made in the middle of the Vietnam War, and you've got a whole bunch of veterans walking around who were in World War II or in, you know, film production or in uh, television production who will have used very heavy handsets in the field in wartime and would have said, I wish that, you know, weighed like a wallet. What if you could, you know, take out a wallet-sized communicator and... And Dick Tracy, you know, I mean, Chester Gould in the 40s put two-way wrist radios and wrist televisions on his character's hands. So people were dreaming of the same technology. They looked at a phone and said, why couldn't this be smaller? Why couldn't it have a screen? So there tends to be a lot of back and forth between the two things. And very often, especially now, people who do visualization for film, that is people who do the imaginative architectural technological design, uh, go back and forth between the two worlds, between industrial design, actually designing things, products, and the world of um, imaginative design that you would do for a film or for a television show. I remember watching two, uh, Space Odyssey when I was a kid. I was really young. Uh, my dad said, sit down, you're going to watch this. This is, this is great. And a lot of it was kind of lost on me. But I remember... Uh, I, I remember the telephone call. I always remembered that, and just kind of, kind of thinking, "Oh, that's really funny. That's really funny." And it was, you know, little realizing you'd be able to do it on your iPhone and just pick up the phone and talk. And it's just we just take it so much for granted, you know. And I think there's a there was a thing I saw online. Someone said, "Oh, there's an iPad in 2001, and there's a kind of pad there with video and." 
it was like a portable tablet that they were using. And, you know, it, it's, it's all down to imagination. It's all down to people dreaming things. In a way, there's creative people everywhere in, in the, the art, you know, filmmaking, all that part of it. But in science, science involves an incredible amount of creativity. I remember I went to see a talk by a theoretical physicist once. And it was base. It was phenomenal. It was so good. It was basically like they came up with an idea, and then they used mathematics to try and prove the idea. And they would try and work around it to see. If, and it was. It was basically. It was creating stuff. It was creating. It was. It's, it's all about ideas. Basically, ideas are the thing, which I think even if you don't really realise it when you're watching a film. Ideas are the thing, especially in science fiction, that are the thing that draws us towards it, the thing that causes the big spark of interest. And because you know, because you hear that something like the plot from the Matrix, you know, it's about a, you know, a guy that finds out that the real world's actually a computer simulation. That idea alone would be enough to make me go and see it. Because you know, and I, and I knew nothing about the Matrix when I actually sat down in the movie theater to see it, so it blew my mind when I <laughs> when I watched it. It's it's a form of creativity. People, whatever whatever people are working in, whether it's like you know, science fiction movies in the seventies and stuff, the idea was what would we think of in the future, and then you know, here we are in the future and people have proven that it can work so it's a similar sort of track it's that somebody comes up with one idea then people see if they can make it work i suppose there has to be a first idea that plants the seed like you know i'm not sure if dick tracy's watch was the first ever smartwatch, but we're now just you see so many people just wearing you know, Apple watches and Samsung watches and all the rest, you know, so some somebody got the idea somewhere. Um, it's the way that I think the ideas, because that's what I was mentioning earlier, was the ideas can get soaked up by culture and society. So like my kids, it took me a long time to get them to sit through an entire Star Wars film, which kind of broke my heart a wee bit because, you know, I love Star Star Wars was the big thing when I was a kid. But before they even watched it, but they they knew that Darth Vader, they knew who he was, and they knew that he was Luke Skywalker's father. And it was no surprise to them. They knew that in the first film. I've never mentioned it to them, but it's just culturally, it's just out there. So I suppose it's kind of the same sort of idea for same sort of idea for uh, you know science fiction ideas and even like the gadgets and the electronics and the design involved and that we've seen so there's a you know there's a simplicity of design that people are going for because they saw it in a very well designed science fiction movie perhaps finally rob this one's for you what do you think the future of science fiction design looks like there's a question, right? I have, I have no idea because it all comes down to, um, and and there is a, there's, there's culture involved in it as well. So it all comes down to cultural change. If we're still making movies, then and we're not, <laughs> we're not all driving about Mad Max style looking for gas. I really don't know. I really don't know. I think I think as far as movies go, it's probably going to come down to one film that comes out that has an amazingly original look to it. And then everything's going to look like that for a wee while. That's <laughs> kind of how it, it's kind of how it's been. It's the it's the feedback loop. You know, you've got so many things influencing so many people, and there's so many people involved in the production of a sci-fi movie. You've got the people right from the beginning, like the storyboard and concept artists like me. You've got how the directors wanting it. You've got how the producers are wanting it. You've got how the studio wants it. Then you've got the production designer's input, and then it gets passed on to post-production, and then you've got the visual effects house. You've got all their animators, all their modelers, all the people doing lighting and stuff like that. So there's so many people involved in the making of one thing that probably one film's going to come out and everyone's going to go, wow, that looks incredible. And then, this sounds very cynical, but it's kind of it's kind of how it works. I mean, Star Wars came out. Everything was a wee bit Star Warsy for a while. Sometimes to hilarious, <laughs> hilarious depths. But um, and then you know stuff like something like Blade Runner came out, and we're still kind of feeling that these days. I mean, most films set in big cities have all got neon and people wearing Macs and stuff and cyber enhancement and stuff like that. And then you had the Matrix came out, and then everything looked a little bit. I'm trying bleach bypassed. 
look to it, which is very kind of dark, stark colours and tints and stuff like that. And yeah, we're, we're, I mean, we're, and then uh, you know, you get your films like Looper, where they're ver- actually Looper's version of the the future, uh, much like Mute, was actually probably quite realistic. And there's a kind of integration of sci-fi into what is essentially very kind of realistic life. You know, there's you know, everyone wasn't floating about on hoverboards yet and stuff like that. It's kind of the way the it's kind of the way the trends work. I think. And that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. Before we go, we'd like to remind you that Mobile Syrup's flagship podcast, The Syrupcast, is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, and pretty much every podcasting app out there. Brad, where can our listeners find you? You can follow me at Brad Shankar on Twitter, uh, B-R-A-D-S-H-A-N-K-A-R, where I tweet a lot (laughs) about Marvel movies, primarily. And, of course, uh, on MobileSyrup.com. Yes. You can find me at Samir Chabra on Twitter and, of course, on MobileSyrup.com. You can find Mobile Syrup at MobileSyrup on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.